Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for joining us to Christchurch Jerusalem as we are studying our evening Bible study, uh, the book of Leviticus. And as we've mentioned before, uh, Jesus has said that the volume of the, of the book speaks of him. And that includes this one, the, the book of Leviticus, so easily overlooked, and yet is the first book that is studied in the yeshiva. And uh, I think it's a, a great book. I think there's a lot there that can teach us about the heart of God and uh, his plans and his purposes for us. And as we continue to wrestle with the text, uh, we can be, hopefully become better disciples of the living Messiah. Now, we acknowledge that the Spirit is present. He is present. He's omnipresent, meaning he is here with me, he is with you, and he is with everybody who is listening. And we acknowledge that uh, one way we do it is through prayer. And our sister from Canada, Sharon, will pray us in. Sister, if you will. Lord, we just praise you and thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the chance to spend time together worshiping you and loving you and spending time thinking about you and your word, Lord. We just thank you for being Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah, so many um, adjectives, Lord. We just thank you that you're the God of the Old Testament, the New Testament, every uh, section of the Bible. And we just thank you that you're God of this world today. And we praise you and thank you for bringing us together again this day. We thank you for the power of technology and brothers and sisters around the world that want to share together and speak about you and, and learn about you and spend time refreshing their hearts, minds, and souls today in your word and in your truth. We pray that you would refresh each one of us, Lord. Meet each one of us in podcast land as well as here where we're at. Speak to us, speak to our needs, open our eyes, and help us to see wonderful things in your word this day. And forgive us, Lord, where we put idols ahead of you, Lord. Take that out of our hearts and enable us to worship you and you alone as Jehovah the Most High God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So going over our notes from last week, there's quite a lively discussion. The notes should be attached on the internet uh, for those that are listening. Leviticus 1, verses 4 to 17, we covered last week. Our summary as follows. We continue our study on the ordinances and rules surrounding the olah, the sacrifice known as the burnt offering. The first recorded olah, in the Bible, is Noah in Genesis, following the flood. The Olah is burnt entirely on the altar. We recall that the Olah has a free will component implied by the conditional question, if, if you bring an offering, not a demand. God does not compel obedience, nor worship. Leviticus is a calling. That's why it's called Vayikra. And we can choose to answer that call and partake in a relationship with the Lord. The Olah is an unblemished sacrifice from livestock. Now, this is different from the poorer bird offering, also called an Olah, to which the unblemished requirement is not required. The worshipper engages with the sacrifice by placing his hands upon its head before the animal is killed. Also detailed is the locations of the sacrifice to the north of the altar for livestock and east of the altar for the discarding of various parts of the bird offering. 
No reason is given for these actions or locations. And theological traditions have arisen over time to answer some of these questions. The priest who officiates receives the skin of the animal as a type of fee for his services, and thus he can provide for his family. Ola comes from the verb to ascend, and it is written that performing this sacrifice creates a pleasing aroma to the Lord and procures atonement. Although the actual sin that is being atoned for is not specified. Actually, sin is not mentioned in this chapter at all. We do not have the word chet, there is no sin. The concept of covering is indeed present, but how and what is unclear. The standard judicial Christian concept of sin, sacrifice, and punishment is not enough to explain our first chapter. There is something much deeper going on. In this initial chapter, we note that the livestock required to make atonement is very expensive and is well beyond the reach of the majority of Israelites. Bird offerings are cheaper. The directive of blemished or unblemished is not required, and the result of bird offerings procures a pleasing aroma, but not atonement. Interestingly, the animal sacrificed is considered as atonement prior to the animal actually being killed, which is an interesting thought. You get the bull, you put your hands on his head, and it is atoned. Then you kill it. Interesting thought. Why the north side of the altar? Leviticus 1.11 gives us the location of sacrifices, but not the reason why. Psalm 75 verse 6 says, Exaltation does not come from the east or the west, nor from the south. Psalm 48 declares that the city of the great king lies to the north. The north became synonymous with hope and redemption, as the prophet Isaiah would declare. The northern lands of Zebulon and Naphtali would see a great light. Jesus begins his ministry in the north. It is in the north, in Caesarea Philippi, that Philip would declare, that Peter would declare Jesus as the Messiah. And from there, Jesus would set his face towards Jerusalem. For the poor a bird offering, the east direction is mentioned. So the east is also special. And this is the direction Adam and Eve flee the garden. From the east come many adversaries, such as the Babylonians. It is also the place of captivity. However, in that captivity, you can find hope and victory, such as Daniel and the prophetic revelation of the Son of Man. Ultimately, the people return from the east and they rebuild. The Magi come to Jesus from the east and prophetically, Isaiah 63 notes a messianic figure coming from the east during the last days. We often think of the Lord as watching over us, thus giving God some semblance of eyesight. This chapter of Leviticus mentions several times that a divine olfactory sense also exists. That is, God can smell is indicated as early as Genesis with the burnt offering of the sacrifice of Noah. Paul describes us in 2 Corinthians as being the aroma of Christ among those being saved. How God actually engages the sense of smell is unclear. I suspect we will not know until the world comes. For now, we see but through a glass darkly. 
Exodus describes a unique recipe of incense that was only to be used for the Lord and for no other purpose. Prayers are also defined as being incense before the Lord. Suffice to note, the free will offering brought before the Lord by a true worshipper does indeed please the Lord, and in the case of livestock, produce atonement. In summary, then, of the first chapter, we know that Leviticus begins as a calling. God does not forcefully compel obedience. Rich and poor have the opportunity to bring a free will sacrifice without the reason mentioned for doing so, nor the occasion, nor the number of times required to do so. Participation by the worshipper is encouraged, and blood does play an important part of the ritual. Geography is theology, and the directions of north and east also become important in the Messianic story. All that from chapter one. Now we begin chapter two, which talks about and discusses the grain offering, the poorest of the offerings. So I will read chapter two for our audience. I'm reading uh, from an ESV. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be of unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or leavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a grill, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, you shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from it the grain offering, its memorial portion, and burn it on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's food offering. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leather. For you shall burn no leather nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits Fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed in grain. You shall put oil on it, lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn it as its memorial portion, some of the crushed grain and some of the oil, the Lord's frankincense, and its food offering to the Lord. Wow. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. That's going to be a, a, a tough one just to sit down and go, okay, yeah, I understand that completely. Okay, let's burn some burn some flour and move on, Aaron. Come on, people. Let's get some pancakes and keep going. 
All right, guys, on a literal reading, tell me a word that's not there. What did you not hear? Before you tell me what you did hear, tell me what you didn't. Command. Say it again. Command. Command. Is that what you said? Yes, I did not hear it. Yep. There's no, there's no command demand requirement. There's another if. What else did you not hear? There's no atonement through this offering. It doesn't relate to, to sin, I guess. Right. What's, that's also a word you didn't hear. No blood. There's no blood, right? And there's no sin. There's no atonement. So what is this all about? Are we just making cakes for God? Is that really what we're doing? This is uh, uh, the Boy Scouts Club chapter of, uh, of Leviticus. Interesting, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. So we didn't hear the word atonement. That is true. We didn't hear the word sin. In fact, this is now the second chapter of Leviticus, and we haven't actually mentioned the word sin. I mean, um, don't you just love it? Normally, when you think of Leviticus, it's like, okay, sacrifices, sin, and away we go. And we use the usual uh, way we, we think about the Christian faith and sacrifices. But haven't actually mentioned sin yet. And with grain offerings, we're all correct. There is no blood. So what are we doing with this? All right. So that's what we didn't hear. Is there anything there that did stand out? Is there anything there that jumped out at you? Went, oh, my gosh, I've never thought of that before. Yeah, I just want to ask a question because I've never understood this concept of salt. I just don't get it. We see the be the salt and the light. Salt is is necessary here if you bring the salt. I just I just don't get it. I don't understand it. Good good question. Um, I like your connections already. You know, where salt and light, and and yet you can't bring an offering without salt. So that, that's a good connection right there, brother. But excellent. Good to good to admit. I don't understand what this salt of the covenant is. And it actually says it, okay? Malach Brit. You go, what is that? And what is the salt covenant? Not sure. But good question. Multi. God gives opportunity to everybody to bring him sacrifices because as we read here, the Mincha offering is for poor, poor people. It's not an animal, so it is affordable to buy and bring it. So. Basically, everybody is equal in God's eyes, and God gave this special offering for those who could not offer the animal and the bird. Michelle asks, is it instead of animal? Not sure. When bringing an offering to the Lord, is there a New Testament story that jumps to mind about poor? First of all, I can answer to Michelle's question. Yep. It is not instead of animal, you know, in the morning and also in the evening, they brought animals. Okay. But poor people could not participate in those offerings. So God basically gave them this offering too. It's not instead of, but also like a side, side offering. If he has money, if someone had money, then they could bring it in the morning or in the evening. Okay. Cheers. Vida. I was just going to answer your question. Isn't it to do with forgiveness? The Lord says when you bring your offering, make sure you've forgiven somebody before or that they have nothing against you before you make that offering. Ah, yes, that's in uh, Matthew, isn't it? You know, um, don't bring your offering to the altar. Go and make sure you're, you're reconciled with your brother. There's a, a strong emphasis on interpersonal relationships and to make sure that we're right with each other, which is actually what we're supposed to think about during these high holidays, right? The, the, the 10 days of awe 
um, a, a strong emphasis on making sure that you're right with your fellow man before you get to Yom Kippur, where you have your one day to get yourself right with God. Ten days to get right with humans, one day to get right with a, with, with a uh, man. Um, for those that are listening in podcast land, we are in Rosh Hashanah, or the tail end of it, actually. Um, and so we're, gonna, we're now entering the 10 days of awe, uh, lead up to Yom Kippur, where we are um, supposed to try and focus on our interpersonal relationships. Okay, Janet. Yeah, I just noticed with the first two offerings here that the portion that's left for the priest is called most holy. And yes. that's not identified with any of the other offerings that we've been talking about. So there's something that it sort of, does it elevate, not elevate, but does it give, give some value to this offering, even though it's perhaps from the poor, that what's left over for the priests is identified as, as most holy. N- yes. Not because it's more holy than the others, but that it's, it's, it's given that designation. You're right. It's an interesting designation that this of the poorest of offerings is the one that says this is now the most holy. And the bit isn't the bit you burn on the altar. The bit is they give to another human, the bit that you give to a priest, which is a very interesting thought already. Um, okay. Out of the stories, I got like three, four hands up. But I just remember, out of the, the New Testament, what's the story about poor and, and giving an offering that you can think of? Who's next? Uh, I think Moti, you were the next one with a hand up. I just want to give an answer, a brief answer to Roddy. If you don't mind, I can say it now quickly. Go right ahead. It says the word, you know, it's in Numbers 18, 19. I think where you were talking about that. It's not like covenant, right? Here in the, the Midrash, it says a salt like covenant is an eternal covenant. Just as salt preserves the meat indefinitely. So this type of covenant endures forever. The measure, it also says like salt is water due to the power of the sun, which shines upon it. The salt turns in, uh, the water turns into salt. So basically, similarly, the covenant is a combination of attitudes of mercy and justice. That's why in Numbers 18, 19, describes this as a salt-like covenant. Okay. So it's like endures forever. An and eternal preserver yeah. part of the covenant. Okay. Thank you very much. Good stuff. Teresa, you've got a hand raised. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of the widow's might. There you go. Yeah. I was too. When I read this, the first yeah. thing I jumped was, ah, oh, look at that. Here you have a very poor um, offering. But when you get, and it, and it was the most holy. And then you get to Yeshua, who stands there, and this little lady gives, like, almost nothing. And yet the Messiah says, well, she's actually given the most. Now, this is actually the best, the best of offering. There's also something else in my Chumash, which talks about the fact that this is the only offering that refers to a um, nefesh, a soul. Um, I know it can mean other things, but they describe it as a soul. And they, they then quote Rashi and say, of all who bring voluntary offerings, only someone who brings a meal offering is described as a soul, since this very inexpensive offering will be brought only by poor people. God says, I will regard it as if he had offered his very soul, Rashi. There you go. It is interesting that the gospel, the good news and the kingdom of heaven is most accessible by who? Who does it most influence? 
the poor. It's not to say that the wealthy don't enter the kingdom of heaven, but as Yeshua also warns us, it's a little harder. And uh, so there's something about all the way back in the Torah where the poorest of the offerings have that little something special about them. Okay. Wait a second. So buying a grave on the month of elders does not redeem us? Uh, no, for you it does, okay, but the rest of us, no, not at all, okay, so uh, you have to save up lots of money and give it to some guy, <laughs> awesome, okay, Yvonne, Brazil, you've got a hand raised. Yeah, yeah, it just reminds me, I know you had, when you had talked about uh, the New Testament, it just took me, <laughs> took me back to the Torah and just thinking about Hevel, Cain and Abel, right, and uh how one was Mingha and the other one was, uh, so it was the first fruits, right? And it was, it was Mingha. It was green. Yes. What you've said is interesting. The, the, the word used in the, in the, in chapter one, we were discussing a thing called the Ola and Isaac's an Ola and Noah offers a first Ola and, and these, uh, these kinds of, and the idea of Ola mean to ascend, there was something that was going up, you know, whether it was ourselves to, to get closer to God, the whole idea of, Korban being coming closer. This word is mincha, and the first time it's used is actually in Genesis 4. You're right, where Cain and Abel offer mincha, and you scratch your head and try and figure out how that happened because you haven't given the Torah yet. Plus, Cain and Abel offer animals and grain, and they're both called mincha. Okay, here, here only mincha refers to grain in this chapter, in this bit. Um, what I want to do is let's also remember that as we go through these chapters, yes, we're, we're always going to be looking through the lens of the resurrection. That's absolutely true. But also, let's also remember, what are the Israelites hearing as they're, as they're going through this as well? What is that speaking to them and how is that um, helping us? But at the moment, yes, we come to a thing called the mincha, which is grain, which you first hear about um, in Cain and Abel. Mincha actually has an, a meaning today. Of course, they have the mincha prayer. Mordecai, you probably pray mincha every day. Would that be true? Correct. We have three daily prayers, Shahrit, Mincha, and Marev. They are, uh, I mean, we basically copied from the three daily temple services. The mincha is prayed in the afternoon. Uh, the area where I am in right now is southeast Turkey. So basically we pray at around 1.30 p.m. Uh, same year shall I am. Yeah. So we basically copy it from the temple. There are some minhagim, the tra uh, traditions say that Eliyahu Hanavi uh, was answered in his mincha prayer. So mincha is very important. Right. How, how long does it take? Just as a, an aside. Just as a, as a it takes only 15 minutes just the shortest prayer. Okay. Very good. The afternoon prayer, the short one, which means that the longest one is what? The morning one? Shahrid is the yeah, longest one. It's like one hour. If you pray with the minyan, it's maybe one, one hour and 15 minutes. Is that Ashkenazi style? <laughs> no, no, Ashkenazi style one. And if, if you are in Sephardi synagogue, it could last for three hours. <laughs> you avoid going there. <laughs> okay. Christine, you've got a hand raised. Ah, Christine, were you mentioning the Anglican Book of Prayer? Okay, yes. For those that um, can't read the chat, the uh, traditional churches, including the Anglican Church, also continue to this day a daily prayer schedule. This is something we have inherited from the Jewish people. 
And the Book of Common Prayer is, is the, the prayer book uh, that we use. And it includes morning prayer, afternoon prayer, evening prayer, and even this one just before bed called Compline, which happens to be one of my favorites. But um, it's patterned, yes, also from the synagogue. And, uh, and morning prayer, yeah, happens to be a little longer. I wonder where they get that idea from. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, Aaron, I, I wanted to just ask one question around uh, on verse 11 about not uh, burning any honey as a food offering. Just wondered if anyone had any thoughts around that. Why not burn honey? Okay, so the question is, here we have this text. Now, if we say don't burn leaven, most of us will probably come up immediately with some sort of theological reason why. Obviously, the text doesn't give us any. But then in the same sentence, don't burn honey. What's your issue? It's a good question, Christine. Uh, I personally do not have an answer. I love this book. I think it's a great book. I think it speaks of the Messiah. I think it speaks to the heart of God. And there's lots of things just in every part of the Bible that I just don't quite get. Honey's one of them. <laughs> yeah, but we're, we're told we, something we can't do. All right, uh, Stephen, one more, and then we'll start looking at the text. Stephen, from, are, you, are you in Haiti or are you back from Haiti? It's good to be back in my own living room. There are two things that I understood that the kind of the that you were talking about the afternoon prayer is based on Psalm 145, which really talks a lot about the heart. And that does connect, I think, with the widow's might and with what they're saying, what you're saying in terms of the poor is that God says in a lot of places that he looks at the heart of the person who gives the sacrifice rather than the sacrifice itself. And so even at this stage, I think that's what discerned the difference between uh, Cain and Abel even was, was the heart was not right. He was doing it for the wrong reason, you know, uh, whatever he gave. God saw that the heart was just bitter. I think that's why a lot of times, again, from a Lutheran perspective, for worship, I'm glad that we start before we even, right at the opening, we confess our sins. And so we can worship more freely uh, without being the cluttered elements, um, hopefully. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I had not associated the afternoon prayers to Psalm 145. And I and have to say something here, sorry for disturbing you. That's what we yes. exactly read in the afternoon yeah. prayer. In the Ashray pra- Ashray prayer does have Psalm 145. So, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. It's a wonderful prayer. So in terms of like the heart, right in, in 1 Samuel, when Saul uh, incorrectly sacrifices, Samuel challenges him and says, it's not sacrifices, I'm looking for the heart. That doesn't mean sacrifices were not accepted. Right. The offering of Cain was not accepted. His heart was wrong. The offering of the small widow, just as poor, just like the grain offering, was accepted. And so it's always, always been about Uh, But that doesn't stop us from free will, obedience to the Lord. Okay, so let's now look at the text a little bit more in depth, see what we can learn and see what it teaches us about the Messiah and his plans and the heart of God. All right, verse 1, chapter 2. When anyone brings a grain offering, this is the Minchah, as an offering to the Lord, his offering should be of fine flour. So we get the simplest of 
commodities. This is the poorest of offerings. He pours oil on it and frankincense. So there's this element of oil and some sort of uh, incense, of resin, and he brings it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And he shall take from it fine flour and oil and all this frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as his memorial offering on the altar. It's a food offering, which is an interesting way of describing it, in the, uh, which is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's offering. Very interesting few couple of verses there. This is a, a food offering. Obviously, in antiquity, a lot of gods uh, were given food. Of course, none of them actually ate it. And even to this day, people still provide food offerings to various gods. Anybody who's been to um, Asia knows that these things are constant. Little bowls of food are left out all over the place to various land gods. And each, each afternoon they are collected. I'm not sure what happens to them. Uh, but then the very next day, fresh food seems to appear. Here you have this bit where a portion of your offering and gift and worship is given to the Lord, which is burnt up, uh, involving oil, flour, probably making some sort of cake. Uh, there's a bit of smell in there. Uh, I don't know if, if frankincense has an actual taste. It seems more of an incense-minded thing in my mind. But the bit, the bit that is actually given to a real human, the bit that is given to the guys who are serving, uh, is called most holy. It's a very interesting. Okay, uh, Vida, before we go. Yeah, it's just this is fascinating for me because of my mind suddenly linked this to um, we're we having Jeremiah and um, Jeremiah's, I think it's Jeremiah or Isaiah, and they were, he's rebuking the people because they're giving raisin cakes, um, you know, offerings. And mm -hmm. God is very specific about what of these food offerings he wants. It can't just be like they were doing these raisin cakes and maybe to other gods, but still, in my mind, they were doing something still to God, but which wasn't exactly according to his order. Yeah, which is an interesting thought, isn't it? People say, I would like to worship God in my way. And uh, who's the hero or anti-hero of the, of the Torah who does that? Korach. Korach is a Levite. He is part of the tabernacle service. He already has his family line, had the ability to carry the ark. They were already doing an incredible amount, more than almost any other family. And yet he still came and challenged Moses and said, I want to worship like you. And, um, and uh, it, it demonstrates, I think, a quality which he did not have but which is a quality that is required of us. And the quality is humility. Walk humbly with your God, says Micah. It's okay not to be the boss. It's okay to worship God in the way that he tells you. It really is. And it's only our pride when we turn around and say, I can do it better. Really? We can do it better than God? Well, man, have we got something coming if we ever say that? Unfortunately, um, too much of us in the world uh, really do. Uh, and then basically when, we, when the people reinterpret scripture to suit their own uh, dreams, desires, and or theology, I was um, looking at a YouTube video which I picked up from a clip 
in, oh, he's here actually, Phil, Father Phil from the Church of St. Jude and St. James, which is an online community, which I'm part of, part of the CDC. The, there was a, 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 a pastor who was describing the passage where uh, Jesus encounters a Syrophoenician woman where he calls her a dog and she, she responds back. And basically Jesus was racist. That was his conclusion. Jesus was racist and the woman pointed it out to him and he recognized his fault and he repented. And you think, how did you come up with that rubbish? How are you still a pastor? Why have you still got a preaching life? You know, um, these kinds of things. This, but this is so true, what we, like what we're saying, because when they did the raising cakes, they actually started offering it to the Queen of Heaven. So how somehow they turned from the living God by doing their own thing, they now start worshipping a Queen of Heaven that they made up. So it, it's just, it's, it's, it's ludicrous what people do when we start just thinking it's about us and what we want. Right. This is actually a simple offering. It's a piece of flour. It's a little bit of, um, little bit of oil. It's a little touch of, of, of incense. Has anyone actually seen incense? It's tiny, right? It is nothing. And a little bit gets burnt to the Lord and the rest gets given to the priest. It is not something amazing, supercalifragilistic. It is from your heart. And it's small. Prayer. When Jesus asks, teaches us to pray in Matthew, what does he say about prayer? He says, don't make long-winded prayers. But keep it short. Keep it small. Keep it from the heart. Keep it direct. Keep it personal. Don't, don't flower it out with, you know, incredibly long words that you've picked up from the thesaurus that you researched about three hours before you came to and, and said prayer. Just tell me direct. Because if you sit and stand there with these really long prayers, I'm not listening, okay? And, um, and you can see it right from the beginning. Why try and, 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 and wreck a simple plan that God has, has said? The poor, uh, I get it. Come with a small bit. I'll love it. And not only that, in a very small way, you're probably helping um, the guys who are ministering for me. I mean, can you imagine uh, some guy comes and all he can give is one, one literally a cupcake, okay? And uh, a little bit gets given to God and then the priest gets a cupcake, which most likely he'll give to his three-year-old kid, okay? Fine. And God says, this is actually most holy. Okay, think about it. Some little kid's going to get a little cupcake and he's going to go, Daddy, this is fantastic. Hey, you know, Shlomo came and worshipped the Lord. Isn't he a great guy? And, 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 and that, that's actually the intention. That's the actual types of worshippers that the Lord is looking for. And that includes even inside the, the New Covenant. It's exactly the same God, remember? The exact same intention is there. Uh, Janet, you got a hand raised? I was just thinking that when it's a simple offering, there isn't there a potential of being able to do it more often? Um, it, it, you know, if you're giving this big animal and, you know, so on and so forth, maybe, uh, maybe you can do it more often. And then, sorry, I was just going ahead to, before we were doing it, what the text tells us about the Messiah, that that, that, that um, participating in the, in the, uh, Eucharist and, and the bread and, and the wine is to be done often, as often as you do this. Yeah. Um, so it, it's seen not as a sort of a big thing that you just do occasionally that you might do with an animal, because um, 
And is there a timing of bringing the animals? Because if you're bringing a male without a defect, it sounds like you have to bring a fairly young one. And it's not as easy to sort of be doing that on more of a continual basis. Just a thought. No, it's a great thought. uh, As I've been looking at some of these recently, I've, I've begun to notice that these big offerings, they're very expensive and they're out of reach of most people. Plus, even if you're wealthy, even in antiquity, you did not have a lot of cows. Like a wealthy person is a person with a couple of hundred head of cattle. Well, he can't offer a cow every week. By the end of the year, he has no herd left, right? It does not happen. And so we kind of get this idea that, oh, my gosh, I've committed a sin. I shall run to Jerusalem and kill a cow. Well, that actually did not happen as much as we thought it did. The intention is in the text, is in the rules, is in the, the obligations, and is done perhaps only once or twice. We have the, the, the things that get done the most are these little things. And, uh, and yet they're the ones that say, well, actually, this is the most holy. And there's a lot of, lot of meaning in the interpretation. And that communion that we have is so simple, is, is so uncomplicated. Uh, Bread, wine, incredibly cheap elements, honestly. Small little bit of wine and a cup going to cost you all of about five shekels. That's like a 50 cents, okay? Um, small bit of bread, unleavened. Well, depending on where you're from, might be a bit more expensive. But here, matzah, very cheap. And uh, yet, it's the intention. Who's coming around to sit around this table? Who's eating and drinking and fellowshipping together? The Lord is present, and that makes it most most holy. There's actually a lot of real special things uh, uh, there. As you said, you know, there were many people who didn't came to Yerushalayim and offered these sacrifices. In fact, there were many idol worshippers even in Yerushalayim at the mm-hmm. time of the temple, when the temple was there. So, it's, yeah. And I saw Radi was raising his hands for like 10 minutes. Oh, I'm sorry. Radi, you, you want to say something? I did. It was a while back. We kind of got off track, but I'm going to, these subjects that uh, Vito and Aaron were talking about in the beginning, bringing offerings, do we do it our way or do we do it pursuant to the instructions of God? And when you go back to Cain and Abel, I, I still argue to this very day, there's arguments against it. They both brought from their heart. They brought both Cain and Abel, both brought from their heart. They both brought the best one, but what was the problem? I argue Cain didn't do it to pursuant to his instructions. It was, it was not what he had instructed. And the argument against that is, well, there was no instructions. <laughs> I, I, I beg to differ. I do believe that God had given instructions to his creation the, for um, offerings and for sacrifices. Yeah, the, that, that, that account in Genesis 4 is incredibly interesting because, as you've said, Roddy, there are no instructions, but there seems to be an implied instruction. They're bringing an offering, but there's no reason why. There's no reason that's discussed why. So there seems to be more of the story that we're missing. It's, it's, it's true. Yeah, it's, uh, there must have been instructions, right? Or they wouldn't know to even bring one. Well, we, we, we can think that. Look, guys, we can honestly think that, but at the end of the day, there's no nothing written in the text per se. But what it means is it's a really good thing to think about. What were they instructed? Why did yeah, maybe, they do such a thing? Maybe it was an oral tradition that they learned from Adam, Adam Arishon. Yeah. yeah. And 
Yep. And that, and that, you know, we. The whole concept we, of the first fruits. Right. Like. Oh, no, it, could be. it could be. We haven't got a religious calendar, but perhaps we have. We don't know. My yeah. argument is Cain did it his way. And we right. consistently see this all the way through the Bible. When we do it our way, it's not going to be accepted. It's right. the so highway. My, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, I, that's a good thing. Submitting to the way of the Lord, walking in the way of the Lord, okay, produces the. the the fruit. Okay. Uh, for those that are reading the uh, sermon notes, I don't know if that's any of you guys. Does any of you guys actually read the sermon notes that we produce? Oh, a few of you do. Okay. Uh, well, we've been going through James. We've been going through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at wisdom and how wisdom influences your behavior or the application of wisdom. If you have wisdom and do nothing about it, well, it actually does nothing to you, really, and your behavior doesn't change, and it's pretty much invalid. But James talks about a thing called the wisdom of earth and the wisdom of heaven. And the wisdom of heaven is, he lists seven qualities of it in James 3, and it's all very similar to what Paul says is the fruits of the Spirit. Um, but these are the things that um, influence our behavior appropriately. And uh, it's not to say that there is no wisdom in the earth. We do have um, uh, some great sciences and advances in medicine and technology and the ability to grow more crops and food. But at the end of the day, um, that wisdom leads, well, it leads nowhere. It, uh, doesn't, it's not inherently evil, it's not inherently good. It doesn't actually make you a good person. What makes you better is the wisdom of heaven. The gentleness, the meekness, and uh, the fruits of the spirit which we put put into practice. Okay, go back into the topic though. Okay, grain offering, simple offering, uh, the poor man's offering. Verse four, uh, the one that's called the most the most holy offering, given to the priests. The priests get to eat. They get to eat the poorest of the offering. Who gets to eat the richest of the offering? The worshipper. Oh, yeah, the priest gets a bit too. But you know, you know, when, when, we have, when we bring a cow, when we bring a goat, when we bring a, uh, a, a piece of livestock, you get to actually participate in the, in the worship. Remember, in Jewish tradition, you, the worshiper, participate in, your, in the sacrifice, okay? very reminiscent of, uh, of communion. Um, but when it's the poorest of offering, the most holy of offering, it goes to um, the Kohens. Verse 4, when you bring a grain offering, Baked in the oven as an offering. So this isn't something that you make then and there. You have these other forms of offering. This is one that is actually now pre-done, premeditated. You have in your home created this. It shall be of unleavened loaves, okay? Something that we haven't seen in the one that you bring before the altar, okay? The one that's just made at the altar with the flour and the oil and the frankincense. No mention of leaven or unleavened. Now in your home, when you're pre-preparing something, it has to have this unleavened component. Okay. Unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. Uh, and if you, uh, if you mix with oil, you shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. Verse 7, and uh, you shall bring the grain offering. Uh, and if your mixed offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. So there's different ways of preparing this pre-prepared offering, which is unleavened. 
when you think of unleavened, what's the immediate uh, thing that jumps to your mind? What's the what's the immediate sacrifice or holiday or anything? Passover. Yeah, right, Passover. But we're not talking about Passover here. We're actually talking about a stock standard, run-of-the-mill, Wednesday afternoon, I'd like to worship the Lord and I shall bake him a cake in my home uh, pre-done to show up uh, on a future date. Okay, Vida. It's just a question. I'm, I'm interested if anybody's got an answer, especially like in verse 4. It's the way the oil's done. In the, in the first, in verse 1, it's you um, pour the oil on the flour. Here in verse 4, you, um, you mingle the oil with the flour. Or if it's unleavened, you anoint it with oil. So why is there different ways of applying the oil? That's, you see, I mean, obviously there's a meaning, but I just wondered if anybody had an understanding or a, an idea. I shall admit to not being able to find one. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I just found the whole thing interesting where it's like, wow, here we are, the poorest of the offering. The kingdom of heaven is made up of the poor. And here are these guys who have just already decided to worship the Lord in their own homes. Okay, we're not in the temple. We're in my own humble little home. I've got, my, I've got my own little oil, but I have to use unleavened bread, which was kind of reminiscent of Passover. Am I supposed to think that way, perhaps? I'm not sure. What do you think, Sharon? Or you got a hand raised? Yeah, this is a great thought in my, uh, my concordance here that when it's brushed with olive oil there, like in verse 4, I think it says it, literally anointed with oil. I don't know what the original. Mashach. Yep. Is it anointed with oil? It's mashach. Okay. Anointing is usually reserved for human appointments by God. Here it was applied to the preparation of a holy sacrifice set apart as a memorial to the Lord. That's a neat thought. It is. And we're still talking about the poorest. I mean, this is one of the things that uh, you spend a whole chapter discussing the poorest of, of offerings, which again, kingdom of heaven made up of the poor. Anybody got some ideas on why there's this uh, different ways of cooking, preparing, or basting in oil I, I i have no no clue any idea why you think it's uh why we have to use unleavened what is there a connection with passover do you think maybe i mean yeshua is the passover lamb i think you know the the um the issue for me if you're relating it to passover is sometimes you make a wrong connection with sin because the pesach lamb wasn't a sin offering it was for redemption and release it was never a sin offering and I think my overall comment would pick up on a lot of people have said already that this is all about obedience. This is all about us bringing from our home something which is ours to God in a way that he's commanded us to. And then it becomes a pleasing aroma because we're being obedient. And I don't think we'll ever really fully understand God's word to the extent that we understand why he asks us to do a lot of things. But the heart who is responding to God saying, wow, you love me so much, you sent your only son, how can I please you? How can I be a pleasing aroma? Is by having a heart for his word and what he said. And this is what these people were doing then. They were taking things that they were baking in their own tents and wanting to bring some of it to God's house as an offering, like we would take our, you know, 10% to the congregation and pop it in the pot. Amen. Yeah. And I, yeah, I love it. It's a... It's, it's, it's humble, it's, it's, it's inexpensive, it's from the heart, it's very personal, um, and it's linked, yes, it, with unleavened and perhaps some even thoughts of Passover. But as you mentioned, there's no sin involved. You haven't mentioned the word sin in two chapters. 
This is a free will offering that, uh, that comes to the house of the Lord to service, serve his people. Stephen, hand raised. Yeah. Well, the question I have is, is, is it really taken to the temple if it's done in their home? Is it sacrificed as a sacrifice within their home as an extension of where God now is located in their home? I've heard yeah, that. Yeah, no, it comes, it comes because you'll see in the next sentence, verse, yeah, eight, verse 9. Yeah. Verse 9. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord, which is going to be in, in either the tabernacle or temple. And when the grain offering is, is, is a memorial portion, burn it on the altar. So you do. Right. Your, your house is where you begin the worship, right. and then, which you then create, and then you, with using this unleavened flour, and then you bring it to the altar. You actually come to the temple. You come to the place that God has um, appointed to you, which, for, let's remember, for 300 years, would, 369 years would have been Shiloh. Okay? Yeah. Before we get to the temple, we would have been doing this in, in Shiloh. And uh, the priest takes it from the grain offering. He gets a little portion, burns that on the altar. There's a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, which we talked about last week. Can God have a smell? Does that actually exist? You know, how does it work? This all this esoteric feeling where Paul turns around in, in Corinthians. Wait, wait a second. We are the aroma to the Lord for those that have been saved. Yeah, prayers are incense. Lots of things are. God seems to be able to smell it all, which is really kind of so interesting. Really, the, the holiness really starts in the home and moves yes. towards God's presence. So, and is and it's associated with the poorest of the offering. Yeah, yeah, the holy. Uh, I mean, obviously, the the by extension also the um, so do the animals as well. I remember uh, reading a midrash, which it talks about a guy who goes out into a field, chooses a goat, okay, really goes through his flock, works out the best of the best, like which one really actually has the unblemished. You know, and he double checks and he triple checks and he gets his brothers and sisters and he double checks and he triple checks and he gets his mum and dad and everybody's like pretty much examined this goat out the brass razoo. And everyone says, okay, this is it. <laughs> and then he trundles it along to Jerusalem. Uh, but along the way, scuffs at hoof, okay, and he steps over a stone or something and he gets to the temple and the priest examines it and says, uh, I'm really sorry, Moshe, but this one's got a, a, a chip in its hoof. It's, it's blemished um but then he turns around and says uh, but you can't have it can't have it back you know Moshe is like what <laughs> it's like what it's like, I, I can't give it to god i, I gotta take it back but no because you've already offered it when did he offer it at home the instant he said this is the lord's that was yeah. it Okay, that was it. That was it. That was him in the altar. That was him and god that was him in the temple right then and there the rest of the journey well that's just obedience that's just the walk of faith. That's the, it's like those, the prayers of ascent, psalms of ascent. Yes. Pray those when you're on a pilgrimage. You can pray them in your synagogue at home. You can pray them at, under a tree. You don't have to pray them on the, on the pilgrimage. But the pilgrimage is the expression of your walk of faith. Yeah. If you've actually already worshipped the Lord. And, uh, and, and it's, 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 it's an interesting little section that it, that's clearly seen here. Worship starts yeah. in the home. Okay? Starts in the home. And, uh, and again, the rest of the grain offerings, verse 10, shall be for Aaron and his sons. It, uh, this, this very um, clear priesthood, even though we are a priesthood of all believers, there still is a special calling for certain people. Right? That's just, we are, it's all of Israel was called 
a kingdom of priests, but we still have priests. Okay, and that's just like you get into the New Testament. Some are called as evangelists. Some are called as apostles. Some are called as teachers. Some are called as um, pastors. Um, that doesn't mean you're not equal. Doesn't mean you're not valued to the Lord. But some of us have certain roles. Aaron's sons have certain roles, and um, and they get a bit of this offering. And once again, it is most holy, most holy part of the Lord, which is not given to the to God. It's given to human. Uh, this is an interesting thought for us all to contact. Looking at um, verse 11, no grain offering that you bring to the Lord can be made with leaven, but you shall burn no leaven nor any honey, which was one of those questions we talked about at the beginning, okay, as a food offering to the Lord. Now, in the chat, uh, somebody in their um, commentaries, I can't remember which one, might have been you, Sharon, mentioned that um, honey is also a fermenter. Is that right? So the whole idea is that leaven and, and honey ferment and uh, create some sort of fermentation process. That's possible. Which but symbolizes sin, right? Okay. That's, again, that's a, we, it could be, it could be a symbolizing of, of uh, sin. But um, if it symbolized sin, why would you eat it ever? It's possible that that's what it, what it means. Um, it could just be one of those things of obedience. I'm not sure. But there's no, no honey, this uh, sweet thing, which you can eat for lots of other things, particularly Rosh Hashanah these days, and, uh, this, and, no, and no leaven. Rocky, you've got a hand up? Yes, sir. I just assume that those things are not a pleasing aroma to his very sensitive olfactory senses. Okay, could be. It could be that God is actually incredibly sensitive. There you go. And uh, these are not pleasing aromas. Although what actually is the pleasing aroma, that's also the next debate. Is it the actual grain or is it something else? That's a very good question. Teresa, what do you got to say? In my homage about honey, it says this. Man should not be sluggish as symbolized by the slow process of leavening, nor should he be obsessed with the pursuit of pleasure as symbolized by the sweetness of honey. Okay, so what, what uh, the Chumash does, what is the Chumash I hear you ask for those in um, podcast land? That's a Jewish commentary. So the Jewish commentary is looking at leaven and honey and then takes it in an allegorical, spiritual way to try and say, looking at the sluggishness of the way these things move so slowly, honey moves slowly and leaven rises slowly, that we shouldn't be sort of halash, weak and, and sluggish before the Lord, we should be energetic, enthusiastic, quick to run to do good, desiring to go out and please him immediately, like Abraham did. Um, and and you know, he immediately obeyed the Lord when he was told to go and offer Isaac. He didn't hang around in the middle of the day and have a prayer session and decide whether he actually heard from the Lord or not. Um, that's not a bad way. So it's to look at the text and say, can't understand it literally, I shall take it allegorically and try and find a spiritual way, which we, which we, which is a, which is a perfectly legitimate way of interpreting Bible. So, according to that interpretation, do not be sluggish when seeking to do God's will. So, Jesus gives you a command: go do it. Why wait? The Messiah has just told us what to do. The King has given us a command to love. Go love. Go be the light. And in, in, in Malachi and other places in, in the Tanakh and the Torah, it talks about, you know, the temple, the table and fellowship 
And then that gets transposed to the idea of the parallel with the Sabbath and the table of fellowship as being the Lord's table, like the temple. And then the Sabbath has, you know, there's a parallel connection to that. And I was wondering, um, you know, what, uh, what you guys think about that. I don't know, Madi, if you have an Aaron or anybody else. So the connections between um, the altar of the Lord, the offerings that we give, the Sabbath, which is a gift, and there's also, uh, you're saying that the Sabbath is then a, a sacrifice per se, or that the Sabbath is when we do most sacrifices? Because you actually well, sacrifice every day of the week. Just the concept of, like he said, you pol- you polluted my table and how the Sabbath. Ah, okay. So, yes, God, yes. In, in his chastisement of Israel through the prophets, he does. He chastises the altar and the forms of worship that uh, engage in, and also the um, observance of Shabbat. It's the concept of the table. I guess for me, it's the, the concept of the table and, you know, how he talked, you know, the table and the temple and then the Sabbath as having that Naman, why are you laughing <laughs> and having the um the table that concept of communion and coming in you I mean like when we when we gather around a table meal to have Shabbat dinner yeah, yeah I thought yeah. That, that, that has become a very important meal okay um one we, we don't know how important it was in the first temple period um it's definitely incredibly important today um, even secular Jews will gather together on Shabbat for a dinner. Like that's the big meal, you know, you know. I had read about that, how the Sabbath has, has there's a parallel with that and the, um, the temple, the table in the temple. Not 100% sure what you're going there with. Uh, with Do you mean it's taken the place of the sacrifices back in the day? That's kind of just like a modified modern version of it. Is that where you're just like a mini version of that? Okay, I think what you're talking about, Yvonne, is you go the whole food idea. Because Jewish people pray three times a day, which is linked to the sacrifices. So that prayer and sacrifice is off to one side. What Nahon, you know, yeah. I think what yeah. you're discussing is the food issue, the idea of eating in the presence of the Lord, the fellowship that we have around the Sabbath table, and then linking those two things together, where eating in the presence of the Lord Temple, eating around the Sabbath table. Is that what yes, 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 okay. yes. Nahon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, I think I finally got it. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do in terms of response that way. We don't have a temple per se, right? Just just like has the, 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 the concept of the Ohel Moed, the, the tent of meeting, had moved from, from what Moses had outside the camp to being inside the camp, to actually the temple of God being a physical building, to the temple being a bunch of humans. You know, the sort of migration of the same word. You'd already seen it, seen that pattern being able to be moved. Um, we could have fellowship in the temple around a food around a meal occasion. Food was always a part of Jewish worship. In fact, it just about still is. Even Yom Kippur is a food issue. You can't have any. Um, food is, a, is, is part of the worship of, of, of the Lord. Every festival has something to do with food. And, uh, and so that, that aspect still has. The, the side issue is we must always understand that at the beginning of these, this, this worship time, regardless of the sacrifice, whether it was with an animal or whether it was in our home, it started with the heart of the worshiper. The heart of the worshiper said, I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to get my little cake and I'm going to make it. And he already told me that I can't use leaven and I can't use honey. So actually, 
seems like a pretty plain cake to me, but it's the Lord's, okay? And not only that, it's that that, that fat priest is going to eat it, okay? And God bless him. Uh, but, um, you know, but, uh, but he's going to do it. And it came from, it came from the, the, the worshiper, which I think is, as we're going to see, as you see in the prophets and in Samuel and, and later on in the, in the, in the British fellowship, that was always the intention. It was always going to be uh, the heart. But there is also this idea of no leaven or honey. So there was some sort of exclusion. There's something that can't come before the Lord. Pride can't come before the Lord. Sin can't come before the Lord. Um, you can't worship the Lord in an inappropriate way. There are things you can't do, right? In our modern world, as followers of the Messiah, who this text speaks about, describe something that you can't do. How do we not worship the Lord? I'll give you one. Probably can't show up to church naked and expect to worship the Lord appropriately. Anyone think that's a good idea? Yep, no, no, I was like in shock. But I think it's kind of true. Would that be true? Yeah. There are some other things you shouldn't do uh, before the Lord. And like to Stephen's point before too, like confession of sin and then having something against your brother. Like it seems like we still do it all the time, you know, as a general thing. We we kind of harbor bitterness and hatred against someone, but it's unacceptable completely. Yeah, the, the, Jesus says through in he said, don't 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 do that. Don't come into my presence if you've got got an issue with a brother. Go sort it out with your brother. I really like personal relationships. Okay, go then both of you come and worship with me. Be great, but but get it sorted. So there are things that we're not supposed that we're not supposed to do. I think and, also to go to worship thinking this is for me. What can I get out of it? As uh, opposed to a obedience in going to worship God because he is God and he is worthy of our worship. Yes, I, I really agree with you, Fran. There's a lot of people who go to church because um, I want God to give me something. And there's a reward. Uh, have a look at some of the, um, the uh, sermon notes. There's a reward for walking out faith and obedience, but that can't be the reason why you obey. Yeah, because uh, this is not a trait, you know. God doesn't work like that. You don't give something in order to take something, you know. He doesn't need it. He's the boss. He's like the fat. So, yep, it's not a trade. It's a, it's a, it's a relationship. This is a relationship. And um, what I really appreciate about this um, chapter is, if you're very poor, you can still have a relationship with God. In fact, you can still have a heartfelt relationship with God. You can have, have a very meaningful relationship with God. So meaningful that the, 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 the woman with the two little coins can be pointed out by the Messiah him, himself and say, this one, this one has a, a, a real close connection. She's the one you should be, should be looking at. Okay, verse 12. As an offering of first fruits. Okay, now this is a different, this is a specific type of, of, of sacrifice. Okay, the first fruits offering, which occurs in the harvest seasons, you can bring them to the Lord. So if you're poor, you don't have to, you know, uh, say, I don't have any apple trees, I don't have any pomegranates, I don't have any grapevines, I don't have any money. But here we have the festival of first fruits. I can still bring something. I can still make something in my own little home and I can bring it. And, uh, and they shall not be offered on the altar. Uh, for a pleasing aroma. So the first fruits are not. And the first fruits are given to the priests. So 
the little cake. Any other time you can give to God, but uh, for the first fruits, it's not. It's uh, for the work of the temple. You shall season. Here's another one. This is another element. Can't have leaven. Can't have have um, honey. Definitely got to have salt. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt covenant, the covenant of salt, the Brit Malach, or the Malach uh, be with your God, be missing from your grain offering with all your offerings. You shall offer with salt, with all of your offerings with salt, which is an interesting commodity, okay? And we've mentioned it previously. How can you be salt and light? You know, this idea of uh, that, that, that our life itself is also salt. At every part of our life, every aspect that we worship the Lord yeah, is part of salt. Vida, you have a hand raised. Yeah, I was just thinking as you're reading this, because we mentioned unleavened bread and now we're mentioning first fruits, is this not these these offerings, are they not associated with the first three feasts? You know, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Now that you've mentioned it, it does seem that way. <laughs> I had not noticed that before. And then secondly, my question is, what is the covenant of salt? Oh, what, is the Hindu, what, is that, what is that really saying, a covenant of salt? Yeah. What do you think, guys? Where does this, because this, this, this appears here for the first time. It's like uh, in the book of Numbers, the Brit Shalom that God makes with Pinterest. You go, what is a covenant of peace? Where did that come from? There's the covenant of salt. I already mentioned it, you know. Yeah, yeah, I was, was going to say, I like what Mari said, because it's, it's everlasting, the water you, 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 the water evaporates and what's left is salt and it's, it's in a sense eternal. Yep, very good. It's a preserver and eternal part um, uh, of the, not just the sacrificial system about our daily life and to be reflected by ourselves that is eternal, that we also preserve the word of the Lord within every aspect of our life uh, and everything that we do also is part of the worship of the Lord, as every aspect of our life is seasoned with salt. Teresa? I'm just taking you back for a moment. Did I miss us? Did we talk about the Omer offering? I don't, don't recollect that we did. We did not. The counting no, the of the Omer after Passover, is that what you mean? Yeah, I, I'm thinking about the offering because in certain translations, like the NIV, it refers to the Omer as a sheaf of barley, but it isn't. It's a grain offering, isn't it? No, on the second day of the Pesach, I know what you're talking about because here in my commentary says, for the verse 14, the first offering of the new grain crop was brought, like here in, on the verse 14, talking about it. but it was of barley, you know? Yeah. Uh, unlike the all other meal offerings, it was of barley. So this is, yeah, similar. But, to it, but isn't it a barley meal offering? I thought it was a barley meal offering because I remember asking my rabbi about this and I said, it's not a sheaf of barley, is it? It's a, a meal offering. And he said it was a meal offering, but maybe that's wrong then. I have to admit that I always thought it was a meal offering too. I know it's that uh, when, when Mordecai um, counts his Omer, it's actually done on the app now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, really, is it? Yeah, I remember... I remember Mordecai talking, oh, excuse me, I've got to count my Omer, presses a little button and it sort of ticks over. It's like, okay, it's awesome. <laughs> Stephen, you got well, a hand raised? Omer, Omer offering was born on the altar. Yeah. I didn't think it was a meal offering. So. Okay. Uh, well, it, it says so, Michael Mush, but anyway. Yeah. Oh. 
Well, I was just wondering, I've always, um, in association with exorcism, um, it, that even within the Old Testament, salt was used in that process. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, that I'm trying to remember. It's it's only been 30 years ago that I read that in in a course, but then I've seen it done in terms of exorcism within the New Testament or within uh, the use of people who get involved in that area. Uh, they always have salt um, used and to put salt in different parts of the house. And I yes. never could find the reference in that, no, but I, that, that was a cleansing element. Yeah, I've heard that too. I don't know how this relates. Well, let, yeah. let's just say this. Salt appears here in the, in the, in the, the wilderness. The people are entering Israel. All, right from the beginning, God is, is requiring that salt be, be part of the sacrificial system. So it's going to have some sort of theological importance, and it's going to carry yeah. all the way through first temple period, second temple period, to the point where every aspect of your worship life is now including this product. Various um, commentaries talk about Jewish commentaries talk about how the um, the temple had huge storehouses of salt. The Book of Ezra actually yeah. mentions salt being as part of the thing that they as they set up the the. To, to, to do the um, rebuilt temple. So salt is incredibly important. And thus, in the New Testament, when Yeshua is getting to talk and he says, you are the salt of the earth, this carries with it all this, this, this theological history that goes in. He says, wow, mm-hmm. you are the salt of the earth. Salt is added to every single single offering. It's, it's added to every single part of your worship. It's become part of your, your daily life. And... Um, and if you lose your saltiness, well, then you've suddenly lost all of your access to the Lord. You've lost all of your access to worship. You've lost all this incredible stuff. We say, don't do that. Don't lose your saltiness. Shine. Get it out there. And uh, you'll, be, you'll be way more, more effective. It's purifying. It's purifying. Yes, it's got a purifying word. element as well. Uh, and it's permanent as, yes, as, and eternal, as, as uh, Mordecai has mentioned several times now. And I've written it down in my notes that will go in there. Okay. So uh, it's also yeah. healing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. And incredibly painful all at the same time. Yes. Rub salt onto the wound. It's good for you. Yeah. yeah but it yeah. hurts like heck. Teresa and you were right. The Omer offering was served with lamp. Sorry. You know, there are many offerings and sometimes mixes up my mind. Uh, in our daily lives, we don't study or we don't practice these uh, sacrifices or korbanot anymore. As Reverend mentioned, we have an app called Counting the Omer. That's the only thing we do related to Omer. So you were. And right. I had I had never seen that until Mordecai pulled it out of his phone one day and said, "Excuse me, well, I, I just got to count my Omer." <laughs> what the heck is he doing? All right, okay, Vida, you're up. 2 Chronicles 13.5, I've just noticed this. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over to Israel, to David forever, even to him and his sons by a covenant of salt? Interesting. Okay, so it's uh, uh, 2 Chronicles 13.5. Going to have to look at that one. Uh, Yeah, I have another one to add on to that in Numbers chapter 18, 19. 19, in, okay. in 19, it talks about, so he talks about the duties of the priest. Okay. You will have no land 
but you will have all of the offerings, everything that's presented will be yours and it will be a salt covenant. And he talks about it being a perpetual yeah. covenant of salt. So it's the so, yeah. perfect. It, that gives, that goes to highlight once again how salt is very important in, in the sacrificial system, and then it stays important in both second temple, first temple, and second temple, and then carries through uh, into the teachings of Yeshua. So that when the disciples of Yeshua hear your salt and light, people don't just go, "Oh, yeah, great, good salt, light." But these 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 words are packed with meaning, and they come they come with an explosion uh, into into the kingdom of heaven. They, they have some sort of relevance to the believer. Yeah, this is amazing because when they when they get this um, understanding in the New Testament now, it really makes sense to me. When they talk about, as you say, the salt of the earth and all of that, you are the salt. It, it's like you, you're part of this kingdom of David through Messiah. You're also yeah. now, as you said, we have this land of inheritance. These are such great promises, as you just said, Aaron. These are amazing promises that we have. And I never understood that before. So that's amazing. Yep, we are attached somehow to yeah. all of this history, even, even as Gentiles, right? That's also a great blessing. So Roddy notes there's a few little things there. Uh, Rocky says that Lot's wife is a, ends up in a pillar. Yeah, she does. Uh, Romans were actually paid in salt. This is true. That's how valuable it was in the ancient world. That's where we get the word salary yeah. from. Isn't that fun? Okay. Your salary was saline. And, uh, that's what one of Israel's... Um, Big exports, apart from wheat and olive oil in antiquity, was salt. There's just chunks of it at the Dead Sea. In fact, there's a mountain there that keeps growing. You can't eat the Dead Sea salt. It's poison. <laughs> oh, man. I was just sitting here as an engineer wondering where they were getting all this salt, seeing as the Philistines sat on the seashore. <laughs> because I have a... I have a, 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 a thing of uh, salt from the dead it's refined it's processed Israel. it's processed you don't eat the raw stuff it's true but there are salt mines down there well, i'm i'm sure a little wouldn't kill you but it's got every uh, um every heavy metal under the sun in that that sea down there we export it all over the world <laughs> when you come to my house you're going to have uh, james block dead sea salt on your food he has it tested after they uh, refine it but just a little bit it has a lot of magnesium in it, but uh, I have a whole bag in my house. We use it every day. Dead sea salt. Dang. Very little refined. Either I'm very healthy or I'll be dead soon. I'll let you know how it works out. You probably won't be able to tell us if you die. Well, <laughs> we'll be so surprised out. around here in Jerusalem. People keep coming back to the dead all the dang time, okay? Right. <laughs> I just texted to one of my Yeshua buddies and asked the importance of salt. Here, what he texted me, so funny, I just wanted to share with you. He says, either it has a deeper meaning, or someone from Moshe Rabbeinu's family was selling salt at the kitchen. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's it. That's it. Uh, what's it what's, why is this in the Bible? Moses was making money. Okay, that's, that's why it's there. No, uh, but it comes full circle in the New Testament, boys, so I think it's cool. Yes, look, the, the, the same things carry all the way through the text. That's what Yeshua says. The volume of this text speaks to me. And when he says things, it's come, everything he says comes packed, loaded with meaning. And okay. both the elements that God wanted in everything for himself are both symbols of the Holy Spirit, frankincense, frankincense. and oil. Ah, man, I didn't think about that at all. Okay, unpack that a bit, REA. Frankincense and oil as symbols of the Holy Spirit. 
Wow. How did, how is frankincense a symbol of the Holy Spirit? In what way? Oil well, the, in, the incenses together are, Aaron had an anointing oil that was based on olive oil, and then all these other incense herbs were mixed into it. Okay. Uh, and he, he alone was anointed, and it's said that it's not for the flesh. It's a very interesting statement as well. I associate that with these two elements here. Any other comments before we try and wrap up? I just yeah. need to say something to our listeners on podcast. So Jewish people like to joke about even with the very fundamental scriptures. So hopefully they won't get it wrong. So they ah. joke about the camp or something like that. So it's a very common Jewish way okay. to joke about. Uh, yeah. So in podcast land, when Jewish people make jokes about the text, they're not being disrespectful. This is a, a way of lightheartedly reflecting on a difficult portion of the Bible. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you very much. So he, so guys, have a look at that. A chapter on a very poor little offering, but is packed with uh, the heart of God. This is the poorest of the offerings made in the homes of people that uh, are brought to the Lord with the majority of it actually going to the priest, but being designated as the most holy offering. It allows that everybody has access. There is no blood involved in this worship, yet it is called most holy. Yet it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We have not yet encountered the words in. We will. Don't worry. We'll get there. But let's uh, remember that a lot of our worship has got nothing to do with, I've got to cancel my debt of sin out. It's an adoration and worship and love of God. Aria, you want to say something? I saw well, it's perhaps slightly humorous, but it's not specifically stated in the text, but in all of these elements, the, the priest is also on trial. Okay. Because he knows very well that he's going to get what's left of what he does not throw on the fire. Ooh. So if you're a priest, how big a piece are you going to throw on the fire? <laughs> how, how big is your mincha that you're offering up as a, as a burnt offering? Whoa, there you go. And what what does it do? Teachers get judged just that little bit more, do they not, Aria? Eh? <laughs> Absolutely. James chapter 3. Yes. Okay, very good. So the priests have to be very careful with their own form of worship. Everyone's involved in, in this form of worship. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.